Good morning, church family, and happy, happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 is our text today. We're now in part 9 of our series, The Providence and Sovereignty of the Unseen King. Now, before we get into today's text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, chapter 8. And it opens with the king giving Queen Esther Haman's estate, and then he learns, the king learns, that Esther and Mordecai are related, which makes him and Mordecai relatives by marriage. Then the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. So the king gave Mordecai Haman's place as second in authority, second in command. Then Esther, it says, gave the management of Haman's estate into the hands of of Mordecai. Now remember, Esther still needs to save her people from being exterminated on the appointed day. And just because Haman is dead, the Jews were not uh, not yet safe. Now let's listen to Esther's request. Follow me now in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 8. Esther again pleaded with the king, fallen at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Verse 4. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Verse 5, If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it right, the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. Verse 6, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? So, so Esther again had to argue her case for mercy for the Jews, and she wasn't even sure if the king would grant it. So, so what was the king going to do about the decree to kill the Jews? Because once... Now, once a king has made a decree, he cannot rescind the decree. So what's he going to do? Well, you see, he has to issue another decree or a counter decree to override the previous decree. So we know that the king couldn't legally revoke his decree or edict, right? We know that, but he could issue a new one that would favor the Jews. And since Mordecai, and I love this, since Mordecai was now the new prime minister, it was his job to draft the new decree, and he had complete authority to issue this new decree using the king's signet ring. Now let's read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews, get this now, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. Did you get that? To protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. So this new decree gave the Jews permission to defend themselves, not the right to initiate an attack, uh, rather to defend themselves against anyone who tried to kill them or take away their property. If you got it, say got it. Verses 13 through 14. We're still in chapter 8 here. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that, got to get this now, so that the Jews would be ready on that day, be ready on that day 
to avenge themselves on their enemies. Verse 14, the couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Verse 17, in every province, in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. Say amen to that. With feasting and celebrating, and many people, and I love this, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message is Ready for the Victory. Everyone say that, Ready for the Victory. I have three points for you from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this, the defense against the enemies of the Jews. Write that down, the defense against the enemies of the Jews. Let's look at verse 1. I want you to follow me here. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. Now, I want to stop there. So, so here we jump ahead nine months when the two decrees or edicts take effect. Now, these two unchangeable decrees, edicts, friends, are destined to come to a head-on clash on exactly the same day. Well, this is the day. This is the day. In one law which permitted the enemies of the Jews to rise up against them and destroy them, and the other which permitted the Jews to rise up and defend themselves and destroy the enemies. Now listen, it was no longer a day of fear for the Jews, but of victory. Say victory. They're, listen, they're positioned, say positioned, ready, say ready, for the victory. Listen now, they're, they're, they're armed and ready to meet the enemy. Say armed. Say ready. Come on, say armed. Say ready to meet the enemy. Now we have a lesson here, and this is the lesson. The lesson is this. Put on the full armor of God. Write that down. Put on the full armor of God. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, it tells us to put on the full armor of God. This is something that you and I must do on a daily basis. We get up in the morning and put on the full armor of God. We need to put on the full armor of God if we expect, listen now, if we expect to have victory over the enemy. We need to be armed and ready to meet the enemy. And I'll talk more about this in a bit. Okay, so let's read on in the text. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. And I love this. But now the tables were turned. But now the tables were turned. That's divine reversal right there. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. You see, the Jews overpower instead of being overpowered. Now that's God's providence. We see God's providence here. God clearly gave the Jews the strength and the power, friends, that they needed to prevail, to prevail. And what this does, this reminds me of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 54, 17, where he says, no weapon formed or forged or fashioned against you will prevail or prosper. Say amen to that. Now let's go back to the text. The Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. I'm going to read that again. The Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. And not much has changed, has it? The Jews, listen now, were hated then and are one of the most hated people in our world today. There is a lot of anti-Semitism 
in our world today. But God still preserves them and God still protects them. Now I want to give you three subpoints. Here we go. The first subpoint is this: the fear. Write that down. Say the fear. The fear. And look at verses two and verse three with me. The fear, the first subpoint, verses two and three. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people, listen now, the people of all the other nationalities were afraid. Say afraid. Afraid of them. And I want to stop there. Do you remember what it said back in chapter 8, verse 17b, chapter 8, verse 17b, where it said this, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear, say fear, fear of the Jews had seized them. Look at verse 3. We're in the text now, verse 3. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraths, the, the governors and the kings, administrators, helped the Jews did you get that? They helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Now, you got to get this. All those who held their authority directly from the king were now on the side of the Jews. And they recognized that the king in the second decree indicated his will and that the real authority now lay with Mordecai. Now, I want you to follow me here. God put so much of the fear of Mordecai into the hearts of the people that the very people who were ordered to kill the Jews helped Mordecai to defeat those who would have killed them. Someone say amen. Hey, this is all God's doing. This is all God's doing. God made Mordecai an object of dread to the enemies of the Jews. And what this was, this was a fear that God had sent into the hearts of the Gentiles to keep them from fighting his people. And I'm reminded of Jacob in Genesis 35, 5, Genesis chapter 35, verse 5, as he traveled from, from Shechem to Bethel. And it says this, Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. It was the same fear that went before Israel as they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, Deuteronomy 2 25, and also Deuteronomy chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 25. Don't have time to read that. Go home and read that. But this is the bottom line. The fear of God protects those who fear God. I'm going to say that again. The fear of God protects those who fear God. Now listen, the Persians saw the power of God in Mordecai's life. You don't think for a second they're not going to fear God? I mean, I mean these guys saw... Everything play out. They saw everything unfold before their eyes. They saw how Haman tried to hang Mordecai on the gallows, but it was Haman, it was Haman who was hanged on the gallows. And they saw how the king gave Mordecai Haman's place as second in authority. They saw how the tables, I love this, how the tables were turned. So, so you don't think for a second that the fear of God is going to come upon them? Yeah, absolutely, friends. They were probably saying, don't mess with this guy's God. Don't mess with this guy's God. And that being said, you, you, know, you know what the main problem is in our world today? This is the main problem. There is no fear of God. There is no fear of God. 
in our world today. Now, 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 now question. Do non-believers, and you got to get this, do non-believers see anything in our lives that would make them want to fear God? And friends, listen now, if you're saved, hopefully we live in a way, we live in a way that non-believers see the power of God in our lives that causes them to fear God. And hopefully they will say, don't mess with their God. Warren Wiersbe said this, is there such a devotion to God amongst God's people that an outsider attending one of our worship services would fall down on his face and worship God and report that God is truly among you? Love that. Do people see us living away that they see the power of God in our lives and that they would say, don't mess with their God. The fear, the, the second subpoint is the fame. Write that down, the fame, the fame. And look at verse four with me. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse four, Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more what? Powerful. So the text obviously tells us that Mordecai's greatness and fame quickly spread throughout the provinces and he became greater and greater in power and also in popularity to all the people around. Now, what I love about Mordecai was that he recognized, listen now, he recognized his high position and great reputation as an opportunity to use his authority to do God's will. Love that. You see, Mordecai's fame didn't get to his head. Rather, it moved his heart to do the will of God. Now listen, here you have a man who goes from a humble gatekeeper to now second in command to the king. Now I want you to write these verses down. 1 Peter 5, 6. And you might remember these. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Not your time, in due time. Matthew 23, 12. Matthew 23, verse 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That sounds like Haman, doesn't it? And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That sounds like Mordecai. The fear, the fame, the third subpoint is the fall. Write that down. Say that. The fall. The fall. And we're going to look at verses 5 and verse 6. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword. I want you to underline that, highlight that, circle that. Killing and destroying them. And they, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 6, in the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed, listen now, 500 men. 500 men. Now, I want to focus on something very important here. So, so go back to, let's go back to the text. How did they kill their enemies? Well, the text says with the sword, right? With the sword. The victory came by way of the, the sword. Now, if you're safe, say amen. There's some practical application to our lives in our spiritual battle. Now, I have a question here. Why didn't God just wipe 
out the enemy so there was no battle. He could have done that. He's God, right? He's God. He could do anything. And he was already doing things behind the scenes in his providence and sovereignty. So why did the Jews have to go into and through the battle? Why? Because sometimes God wants us to go through the battle because it's in the battle that we see his mighty hand at work on our behalf in giving us, you and I, the victory. Say amen to that. So this begs the question, how does the victory come? By the sword, which is the word of God. Got it? The word of God. Now I want to go back to Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. I'm going to read the whole uh, passage there. And Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. That's the decision we have to make. Put on, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. There it is again, reminding us to, to put it on, so that when the day of evil comes, and it will, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth. Belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, listen to what he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. So I want to point out something here. The only piece of armor, spiritually and metaphorically speaking, that's not defensive is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. It is the only offensive weapon. And it's the weapon that determines, listen now, that determines our victory. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, you might know the story of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted by the devil three times. And three times Jesus quoted the word. He quoted the word. That's how he, that's how he came out victorious. In fact, after he quoted the word a third time, it says the devil left him. So there's a lesson, and this is the lesson. Know the word of God. Got it? Know the word of God. Friends, listen now. If you're saved, it is important to be in the word, to read the word, to study the word, and to feed on the word of God. Now listen, if you don't know the word of God, you'll fall, you'll, excuse me, you'll fall right into the enemy's hands and you'll be defeated because of it. You need to know, say no, know the word of God. Matthew 4.4, 4, Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We need to know the word of God. Now, I'm just going to say this, okay? I'm just going to be straight up here. If some of you would, would spend just as much time in God's word as you do on social media, your walk with God would be stronger and you would be more victorious. I'm just saying. 
We need to spend time in the Word of God, friends. We need to read the Word, feed on it. Let it resonate deep within our hearts. We need to know the Word to be victorious. Can I get an amen? Point number two. Point number two is the death of Haman's sons. Write that down, the death of Haman's sons. Again, the death of Haman's sons. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10, if you're still with me, say amen. Verses 7 through 10. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemies of the Jews. So I want you to follow me here. So in the citadel of, of Susa, the part of the city that contained the palace, there would be a large number of, of Haman supporters who had been appointed to the positions by Haman and many who were, who were related to him, including his ten sons, who would want to take any opportunity for blood revenge against the Jews. His sons were seeking to avenge their father's death when in fact it ended in their own death. Now, 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 interesting here, and I want you to stay with me here and follow me here. In the Hebrew text, okay, the Hebrew text, listen now, the Hebrew text does something with these names which is done with no other list of names in Scripture. These names in the original Hebrew text are organized in a column. They're spaced out and set apart from the rest of the text. And it's very strange for Hebrew to be written this way. So some have suggested that writing the text this way, listen now, visually expresses the idea that these enemies of Israel had been set apart for destruction. It's like a hit list in Scripture of the enemies of God and of Israel. Someone say, wow. And you see, the person who wrote this text, which is Mordecai, we know that Mordecai wrote Esther, was clearly trying to bring attention to these names. So stay with me here now. Perhaps he did this for two reasons. Follow me. First, the list of names, this list of names, excuse me, this list of names and the fact that these men are put to death, get this now, is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's the first reason, a fulfillment of prophecy. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, Exodus 17, verse 14, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, God says that he will have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until they're destroyed. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, remember this? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God commanded King Saul to destroy, completely destroy the Amalekites. But guess what? Saul did not obey. He disobeyed God. And you see, King Agag was allowed to live. And at the end of the chapter, end of, of 1 Samuel chapter 15, Agag is killed by the hand of the prophet Samuel. Remember that? Now, some of Agag's children escaped because 600 years later, we come across Haman the Agagite and his 10 sons, which they are descendants of Agag. Well, now that Haman is dead, and his ten sons are dead, the name of Amalek is blotted out forever, just as God has promised. Say amen. Listen, God 
always, say always, fulfills his promises even if it takes 600 years. God is a promise keeper. The second reason for bringing attention to these names is each of the 10 names in the Persian language, you got to get this, in the Persian language contains the word self. Yeah, the word self. And this reveals a little about Haman, doesn't it? He, he was stuck. Haman, Haman was stuck on himself, and he named his 10 sons after aspects of himself. So I want you to follow me here. Let's go back to these names. Parshandatha means curious self, or I am curious. Dalphon means weeping self, or, or self-pity. Aspatha means assembled self, or self-sufficient. Poratha means generous self, or self-indulgent. Adalia means weak self, or more likely, humble self. Did you get that? Humble self. Now, have you ever known someone who is proud of being humble? Huh? Have you? And Haman must have been just like that, going around boasting about how humble he was. In fact, he probably wore a T-shirt that said, humble and proud of it. Then you have Adidatha, which means strong self or, or self-assertive. Then you have Parmashta, which means preeminent self or self-ambition. And you have Adisai, which means bold self or I am bold. Then you have Adidai, which means dignified self or I am superior, and Vaizatha, which means pure self or self-righteous. Listen, all of these selves were put to death. Did you get that? Not only is Haman dead, not only has his plan to annihilate the Jews failed miserably, but now all of his sons are dead, whom he arrogantly named after aspects of himself. Haman's pride has led to his great downfall. Remember this? Pride comes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. Now you will notice two extremes in this story. Haman, get this now. I'm loving this. Haman tried to exalt himself and ending up dying along with all of his plans coming to nothing and all of his sons being put to death. Esther, on the other hand, said in chapter 4, verse 16, remember this? Chapter 4, verse 16, if I perish, I perish. And she was willing to die in order to do what was right, and yet she was honored, blessed, and raised up as queen with her family and her people being raised up to honor with her. Listen, those are two options, and each has its own result. You have Haman in trying to serve self, ended up dying anyway. And then you have Esther in giving up herself, was blessed and honored. Listen, you're still with me, say amen. Self always dies. I'm going to say that again. Self always dies. Okay, whether now or later, it always dies. But the outcome is extremely different depending on which you choose. Die to self now, like Esther and Mordecai, and receive blessing and honor, or like Haman, serve self now, but end up losing all later. 
And you know, I believe the Jews, the Jewish people, had apparently learned this very lesson as they watched these events unfold between Haman, Esther, and Mordecai. I want you to write this down. Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Mark 8, verse 36. For what will it profit for a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I'm going to read that again. For what will it profit a man, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Are you ready? Here's a lesson. Die to self. Write that down. Die to self. Listen, we die to self when we set aside our wants and our desires instead focus on loving God and valuing others as highly as we value ourselves. And friends, this, this moves us away from self-centeredness to one who cares deeply for others. Now listen, it is much easier to pay attention to the concerns, the interests, and the needs of other people when we are no longer obsessed with our own interest. Amen? So die to self. This is not about you. Die to self. I want you to look at the end of verse 10 because this is very important and we're going to look at this later on well, pretty much in the close of our message. But look at verse 10. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Did you get that? But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They could have. They could have. But they didn't. Point number three. Point number three. The complete defeat of all the enemies of the Jews. I love that, the complete defeat of all the enemies of the Jews. Now, we're going to look at verses 11 through 17. If you're still with me, say amen. Verses 11 through 17. It says, The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. Verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men. Say amen. And the ten sons of Haman, say ten sons, sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. So I want to say this. This suggests that no vindictiveness was shown against women and children. Did you get that? They killed 500 men and sons, okay? Uh, no women, no children. Let's read on. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. So the king was concerned. I want to stop there. The king was concerned to let Queen Esther know that her people were safe and had not been slaughtered and had safely dwelt, excuse me, safely dealt, dealt with their enemies. And he then asked her what else she wanted done and, 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 and promised her that any wish would be fulfilled. So let's read on, verse 13. If, the, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. Did you get that? Tomorrow also. They extended another day. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So, so Esther, listen now here, Esther was apprehensive that Haman's strongest support was in strongest support was in the capital city where people had bowed to him and benefited from his favors. So they would immediately want revenge for their losses and that the next day they might seek to avenge themselves on the Jews. 
And this would put the Jews in a difficult situation for they would no longer have the king's authority to take up arms. Whereas the followers of Haman might feel that they need, excuse me, that they had nothing, that they had, excuse me, little to lose. So recognizing this fact, I hope you're with me now, recognizing this fact, Esther asked for an extension of the decree to the following day and that Haman's sons, Okay, Haman now is to see sons be impaled on stakes as a warning of what followed for those who displeased the king. Look at verse 14. So the king commanded that this be done, and an edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. Now, obviously the sons, the ten sons of Haman, were already dead, but sometimes criminals, after being executed, were impaled on stakes in public places as reminders and examples as visual warnings of what happens to those who disobey and displease the king. So Queen Esther was sending a message to those who were going to try to come up against the Jews. Verse 15, The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they, listen now, and they put to death in Susa, 300 men. This is what it says. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Did you get that? They could have, but they didn't. It's the second time that says that. Verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed, listen, 75,000 of them. This is what it says. But did not lay their hands on the plunder. That's the third time it says that. 75,000, that's a lot of plunder. That's a lot of plunder. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. We're going to get back to that right now. Okay, there's, there's, there's a huge lesson there. Verse 17. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Now the 14th, they rested, say rested, and made it a day of Feasting, say feasting, and joy, say joy. So immediately after their, 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 their great victory, there was a time of celebration. And what they did, they rested and rejoiced in the fact that the Lord had delivered them from their enemies. Amen? That the Lord had delivered them from their enemies. Now, there's a lesson here. Here's a lesson. And the lesson is this. Restraint is greater than retaliation. I want you to write that down. Restraint is greater than retaliation. And where am I going with this? Now, I want to go back to what we read earlier. And I want you to follow me here. In, in, in verses 10, verse 15, and verse 16, it says, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder, right? Three times it says that. So it's clear from this that far from being vengeful, venge, vengeful, the Jews exercised, got to get this, exercised great restraint. They only did what was necessary to save their own lives and of those of their children. Now remember, and I want you to follow me here. It was in Saul's taking of the plunder from this same clan they got him in trouble and made him lose his kingdom in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And the Jews weren't going to learn that lesson over again. 
Now listen, the Jews, unlike Haman, were not looking to become rich. They were not looking to, to benefit personally from their deliverance. You see, Haman wanted revenge on the Jews, but he also wanted profit from it. On the other hand, the Jews are set in contrast here. They didn't set their hands on the plunder, though both the Persian law and the second decree or edict allowed them to, but they didn't. You see, though they were allowed to plunder, they simply wanted to save their lives, not improve them with their goods. And friends, they were trying, listen out, you got to get this, they were trying to right the wrong that, that had been committed by King Saul hundreds of years earlier. And so here the Jews fix all this. They get it all right. And they wipe out the remaining Amalekites and they refrain from taking any plunder. They focused only on defending themselves, not on profiting from their enemies like Haman wanted to do. So speaking of restraint is greater than retaliation, staying there, focusing on that, I want to end with this. Three things, three things to do when tempted to retaliate. Three things to do when tempted to retaliate because it's in our nature, right? Let's be honest here. It's in our nature to want to retaliate. When someone does you wrong, right? When some, someone does something against you, it's in our nature to retaliate. And friends, we'd rather get even rather than get justice. So three things to do when tempted to get back to retaliate. First thing is this. Remember, you're different from the world. Write that down. Remember, you're different from the world. Now, if you're saved, you're born again. Listen now, if you're a child of God, listen now, you're in the world. Yes, but not of the world. So you got to be different. You got to be different. So remember, anytime that you are tempted to get back at someone, remember you're different from the world. You don't act like the world. You don't live like the world. You don't respond like the world. The second thing is this. Remember, you're a member of God's family. Remember, you're a member of God's family. Now, I'm going to say this. You're a member, not the head of the family. Got it? You're a member of the family, not the head of the family. Christ is the head. And I want to tell you, friends, so, so my role and your role, our role is not to take charge like Saul did, but to take direction like Samuel did. Got it? And the third thing is this. When you're tempted to retaliate, remember the Lord is your defender. God, the Lord is your defender. So let's sum this up. You're different. There's a head over you, which is Christ. And God is your defense. God is your defender. Amen? So the Jews in the story here were ready for the victory, and they won a great victory. But the bottom line is that, listen now, is that the, the invisible hand of God destroyed their enemies. God wins in the end, friends. God gets the final victory. Eventually, all of God's enemies will be routed. Someone say amen. Now, if you're saved, say amen. God, now I want you to say this, God gets the final victory. Say that. God gets the final victory. God has the final word. Got to get this now. God has, the, God has the final word with man's evil. 
and God's enemies will be utterly destroyed. So we should lift up our heads and in our hearts because of victory. Sure, God, listen, God is going to win. And because God wins, we win. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I thank you for the power of your word and, and the lessons that we have learned from your word today. And might they permeate our hearts and encourage us and convict us and position us to daily walk in victory. The victory is sure because the victory belongs to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Someone say amen. Now listen, if, if you desire to ask Jesus to come into your heart and your life to be your personal Lord and Savior, you see Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to change you. He wants to cleanse you from all your sins. He wants listen, to use you. He wants to fulfill his purpose in your life. He wants to save your life. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you need to admit that you're a sinner, acknowledge you need a substitute, and also accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And if that's you, if you want to do that today, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth, that you are Lord and that God raised you from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me this day. From this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you said that prayer and made that decision to follow Jesus, we, we want to hear from you. In fact, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. So everyone, I hope you enjoyed the message. This has been a, an amazing series, and we're almost done with it, by the way. Uh, I just hope you have a wonderful day that you will continue to serve God, love God, witness to others, and uh, I'll see you next week. Okay? God bless you, love you more, and miss you a whole lot. Take care.